Welcome to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. This week we take a break from Nehemiah and are led to consider Matthew 7 and the fruit of the church with our friend Ron Ziegler. Ron is a ministry partner of our church and works with Ministry to State. Ministry to State engages public servants in their different spheres with the universal truth of the gospel, recognizing the plurality of beliefs and doubts in our culture and considering them in light of the story of historic Christianity. He does this right here in our capital here in Harrisburg. We hope you're blessed by this message. As we prepare to look here at this passage this morning that's entitled The Real Fruit of the Church, the preparation that's been done in bringing us to this point has been very good. The songs that have been uh, chosen, the music that has been played, the readings that have been done have all brought us to this place of understanding that we are before God only because of Christ. We can only be here worshiping God. We can only be in our daily lives because of what Christ has done for us on our behalf. We have nothing to offer but only what Christ has given to us. We are completely recipients. And then we are his messengers to go and reveal that reality that God has been pleased to share with us. So before we head into the sermon, let me draw us to prayer and then we'll begin. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your tremendous love. You love your people with an everlasting love. And we ask, Lord, that as your spirit is here, that he would guide us and direct us in all that is right and true. Help us to understand that which you have revealed in your word. Give us courage and strength to be your obedient servants, to be your loving children, to be good neighbors to those around us. Help us to love you with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to joyously love our neighbors as ourselves. We thank you and praise you in the beautiful and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Road signs are wonderful things. They aid drivers in properly navigating back roads and highways. Maybe not as needful today with our GPS as they used to be, but they're still useful in letting us know what's coming up ahead because GPS is not always as accurate as we would like it to be. There are stop signs and yield signs, street signs and one-way signs, just to name a few who are all quite helpful. One of my favorite signs, some of you may have passed it, is here in the Harrisburg area. It's an enormous yellow sign with a big black arrow that dramatically alerts drivers to a sharp turn at a quickly approaching dangerous curve when we're traveling from Hershey on our way to Harrisburg in the back roads to one of our sister churches, um, Trinity, over in the eastern part of Harrisburg. This provides important information to interested drivers on how best to approach the treacherous curve. For those that are familiar with the road, they're ready. But for those of us that may be encountering it or maybe even at times not quite well paying attention to where we are driving at the moment, maybe looking at our cell phone when we really shouldn't or engrossed in a conversation, this large sign stands there and says, slow down because there's a dramatic curve here. And if you miss it, 
you'll go over the cliff. In a similar way, Jesus is putting up signs for the large crowd of people that are the audience in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, as chapters 5 through 7 here in Matthew are called. His first sign is about two ways to navigate in this world that carry on into the next. There is a way of life through the narrow gate that leads to a narrow road, centered on Jesus. And there is a way that leads to destruction, which is through the wide gate centered upon ourselves that opens to a wide road. That is the conflict that we face through the entirety of our lives, is who are we going to follow? Are we going to follow Christ, or are we going to follow ourselves? Enter by the narrow gate, Jesus said to the crowd, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus says the narrow gate is the one to enter, and to avoid, really at all costs, the wide gate. The narrow gate is the way that leads to life, and everything that we could think good about that life is found through that gate. The wide gate is the way that leads to destruction, but it often appears at times that the wide gate is going to offer all that we think we need and want. But it is a trick. It is deception. And it leads us to destruction. Proverbs 14.12 describes it this way. There is a way that seems right to a man. But that way ends in death. In Psalm 19 verses 7 through 11, we, we hear again the beauty of what life is in following Christ. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is a servant warned. In keeping them is great reward. To live life in the true reality, not in the false veneer of something that is being concealed that truly is a detriment to us. The second sign is about watching out for false prophets. These can be hard to spot at times since they often can, at first, appear to be fellow sheep. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. They are, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear, I mean, a healthy tree cannot but bear, cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit 
is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus we will recognize them by their fruits. So not to worry, Jesus gives us a great sign on how to tell who are the false prophets, clothed as ravenous wolves. The sign which gives them away and exposes them is their fruit, the product of one's life. It may not be able to be seen right away. As Jesus warned that we should be careful of harvesting the wheat and the tares before they have matured because they may look similar as they are growing. But when they mature, we will see. So it may take some time for us to sort out the truth. But the sign gives, gives them away and exposes them in their fruit. We can identify them by the fruit of their lives. What is produced and what is happening? Just as healthy trees produce fruit that is true to their real nature and is rightly recognized, so it is with false prophets. They can only produce bad fruit that is not true to the reality of God in Jesus Christ. Good trees produce good fruit, while bad trees produce bad fruit. Watch for the signs God has given to us for fruit that comes from the Holy Spirit. As Paul describes in his letter to the body of Christ in the region of Galatia, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When we look into the world, we can recognize those qualities and see them manifested as a true representation of the fruit of God in the life of an individual. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have been crucified to the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Each of us probably knows someone that we truly respect that we know is in Christ. And we, we see manifested in their lives these characteristics that the Holy Spirit brings out. And we know that each one that we recognize in that way, they also make their mistakes. They at times are not as gentle. They are not as faithful. They are not as joyful. They're not as kind. But one of the characteristics that is evident in those who are in Christ is that when those mistakes are made, those failings occur, there is that seeking of forgiveness. There is that repenting, that recognizing that what I have done is not what should have been done. And I have sinned against you and I have sinned against God. It can be summarized as living for God and Jesus Christ in all things and loving and caring for our neighbor as we do ourselves. These, among others, will point the way to discerning the true, a true prophet from any false prophets trying to hide their identity and nature. And the third sign is the focus of our attention today. With this sign, Jesus is warning people about what they are trusting in when they are before the true living and holy God facing the final judgment. Jesus is bringing a warning against a false assurance as well as some instruction on what the priority in the lives of each of his followers should be. He is warning against false prophets. He is warning against the damage these false prophets do and the harmful teaching they bring to his people. So Jesus exposes 
the teaching of the false prophets that is contrary to the true, righteous, and life-giving teaching of God and Jesus Christ and to, from his apostles. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. At a first glance of this passage, it appears that Jesus is talking about salvation and fellowship with God through the works that each of us seek to accomplish. But we will find this is not the case when the passage is appreciated more fully upon a closer, uh, a closer look. One prominent religious group in 1994 summarized their understanding of righteousness before God this way. I quote, each one of us should hope with the grace of God, to persevere to the end and to obtain the joy of heaven as God's eternal reward for the good works we have accomplished with the grace of Christ. Is this really the accurate teaching of Jesus Christ and his apostles concerning the true nature of Jesus' followers' relationship to God? I say no. It is a subtle, false teaching that may not be noticed right away. But when it is evaluated by the fullness of God's word, and when the fruit of this false teaching matures, it is clear to see that it is not good fruit. It is instead rotten fruit that only leads to eternal death and no peace with God and Jesus. When we look at two lines that converge at a single point, we call that an angle. No matter how narrow we might make that angle geometrically, if we take that, the, each of those lines and extrapolate them out in infinity, they will separate greatly. They may look close when they are together, but when they are matured in their fullness, we see just how greatly far apart they are. Can we really be rewarded with heaven and fellowship with God through the good works we do with the grace of Christ? Or is it only absolutely and exclusively the work of Jesus Christ received by God's gift of faith that his followers are brought into loving fellowship with God and ushered into the glory of heaven? In Acts chapter 16, verse 31, we hear this. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. In Romans three twenty-eight, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And in Romans 4, 5, however, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Is Jesus Christ here teaching legalism in this passage? Is Jesus teaching that his people achieve salvation through their obedience to the law, contrary to those verses I just read? Or in other words, is Jesus teaching that his followers are rewarded with salvation, peace with God and eternal life in heaven by their works here on earth? Without any hesitation, we must answer no. 
Again, Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But listen to who will enter the kingdom of heaven. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It does sound a little bit like there's something that someone must do in order to find peace with God and eternal life. We're reminded here that this is not a parable. This is an encounter that Jesus is talking about. This is a prophecy of Jesus about the final judgment. This is something that will take place, and he is warning us all with the truth about the true and real fruit of the church. At this final judgment, each of us will have to answer for ourselves before Jesus. We will not have our parents with, them, with us. We won't have our teachers with us. Our friends won't be with us, nor our pastor, nor our elders. We are individually responsible for our answer to him on that final judgment. There are those, there will be those who say, Jesus, Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Take a moment to let that sink in a little bit. To the contrary, only those who do the will of Jesus' Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. So a question that really is before us, I think, is what is the will of Jesus' Father? It's a very important question, but we're going to hold off for a moment and get back to it just a little bit later. First, let's, let's notice in what these people who cried out, Lord, Lord, are putting their confidence in as they stand before Jesus on that last judgment. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? Listen to what these folks are trusting in as their confidence and hope before Jesus. Maybe some of us might even hear some of these very things in our own mind of what we might have approached God with at some time in our life. Well, Jesus, look, I did this. Why is this happening to me? I did this. Why isn't it working out the way I think it should? They did not. Did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do mighty works in your name. Please notice that these are not uninvolved people in the name of Jesus. They could be people like you and I. Thinking that we are righteous before God to some level. Knowing we are trusting Jesus, but to some level of what we're trying to produce in order to be seen by God in a better light. They are not just followers of Jesus who are present on Sunday and then uninvolved the rest of the time. These people are active, doing noticeable works. These people are active, doing great works, professing their significant labors in the name of Jesus Christ. They're not presenting them in the name of somebody else, but they're saying that they did these things in the name of Jesus. These active, professing followers of Christ are not pagans. They are accomplished. They have accomplished these works in the name of Jesus Christ and no other. They are not lying about what they have done 
in the name of Jesus. They haven't embellished the things that they have done. Because Jesus does not challenge the validity of their claims. With the promise that Jesus will send these people away at the final judgment, how should we view this? What hope is there for those of us who do not accomplish such great works of human effort in the name of Jesus? A true Christian answer is, if we rely upon our own works, we do have no hope. At the last judgment, their pleas will be their own works, not the complete and truly righteous work of Jesus Christ. What do these workers of great human works not say in their own defense on that day of judgment as they stand before Jesus? This is critical of what's missing in their declaration and proclaiming before Jesus. They say nothing about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They say nothing about his substituting himself as an atonement for their sin. They say nothing about Jesus in love for his father and for his beloved bride taking upon himself God's wrath for their sin. They say nothing about Jesus being their savior. Just Lord, Lord, this is what we did. Because they do not believe in and confess upon Jesus' work alone as their savior, they are not saved from God's wrath. They are not at peace with God. Even a demon has said he knows something of the truth about God, about Jesus. I know you are the Holy One of God. But this demon does not know the peace with God that is not entering the kingdom of heaven, just as these folks are not. If we, like these folks, rely upon anything that we do, even to thinking we are adding to what Jesus started in us, we too are lost. If you think that because I attended worship services all of my life, we are lost. I served as a leader in Christ's church. We are lost. I tithed in my giving all of my days. We are lost. I taught in a Christian school. We are lost. I held evangelistic meetings. We are lost. I raised lots of money for Jesus. We are lost. I obeyed God in all of my family ways. We are lost. I helped the poor. We are lost. I aided the weak and the homeless. We are lost. I fed the hungry and visited those in prison. We are lost. In Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. They argue that they deserve heaven by what they have done. They deserve God's favorable judgment by what they have accomplished. They do not see themselves as sinners, fully and completely dependent upon the righteousness of Jesus for their perfect standing before God. Instead, they see themselves as righteous people by their actions and their attitudes. Their cry is not, be merciful to me, a sinner. But instead, they proclaim, Jesus, listen to what I did in your name. They do not confess the matchless mercy and grace of God and the sinfulness of themselves. Whatever the message they proclaimed, it was not the true gospel of Jesus Christ. True, they accomplished many great human efforts and works, and even though they said it was in the name of Jesus, it wasn't 
because of these three things. Their motive, their meaning, and their message is of themselves, not of God in Jesus Christ. This is a great warning about missing the true gospel and the real fruit of the church. Paul gives us in his letter to the church at Corinth who struggled and wrestled with this understanding when he writes of the true nature of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached. It's this simple. Which you received and in which you stand. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance of what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And in Romans, 3, in Romans 3, beginning in verse 20, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was now to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that a person is justified by faith without relation to the works of the law. Which brings us back to Jesus' closing statement of this passage. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus does not pronounce judgment upon them until after they have made their defense. Due process of the law is established by God and upheld here by Jesus Christ. They speak, and Jesus responds. I will declare to them, I never knew you. I will declare to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But instead, listen to what Jesus, what the Apostle Paul says to the people of God in Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and been called according to his purpose, for whom God foreknew. God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That his son might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom God predestined, these he also called. Whom God called, these he also justified. And whom God justified, these he also glorified. 
Jesus makes it clear that there was never a time when he knew these people. It wasn't that they had been known by Jesus earlier and now they had turned away and lost his affection. No, they had never been known by Jesus ever. Jesus did not foreknow them. He did not predestine them. He did not call them. He did not justify them. He did not glorify them. Jesus refers to their great human efforts as works of lawlessness, not works of righteousness, because they had sought to establish their own worth and value before God by their actions, which is contrary to God's law. The legal use of the law for us is to know about sin and understand how to honor God and live in his care and what is best and right for ourselves. The illegal use of the law for us is to try and use it as a basis of our righteousness and a false justification before God. Legalism is trying to earn your way to God's righteousness and in reality, it is lawlessness. What then does it mean to do the will of God? The will of God is a synonym for a right belief and trust in God through Jesus Christ for all that we count for righteousness. And it manifests itself in the work that God enables us to do by the power of his spirit. Then what follows righteousness by faith alone is all that Jesus has accomplished are God-honoring actions that are focused on reflecting God's magnificent glory and not trying to achieve any merit for ourselves. Jesus explains what it means to do the works of God. In John chapter 6, he was approached and asked, what must we do to do the works of God? And Jesus responds in a most simple and profound manner by saying, the works of God are these, to believe in the one whom he has sent. To believe in the one whom he has sent. When God enables us to do that, all has been accomplished. Everything else is icing on the cake of what God enables us to do as he has brought belief and life into our, our being. We cannot do anything in addition to that to gain a greater favor by God than what Christ has accomplished himself and has given to us. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in the Son may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Believing and trusting in Jesus for everything is doing the work of God. Matthew 12, Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Spiritual fruit does not mean just physical works done, but it also means that which is believed and trusted upon. Good fruit is a right and true understanding about Jesus and living in complete dependence upon Jesus Christ's righteousness given to his people by God's gracious gift of faith in him alone. Bad fruit is trying to add anything of our own doing to the gracious, complete, and everlasting work of Jesus Christ. The ongoing temptation is significant for believers and unbelievers alike. 
That is to trust ourselves at times in the good things we do as a way to try and find favor with God. Paul, in a very well-known passage, said to us that I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. What will be your daily moment-by-moment response? Will it be your works of lawlessness? Or will it be a full dependence upon Jesus Christ's complete work of righteousness applied to you by his gift of faith to you and all of his chosen people? The greatest thing that we who are in Christ have to offer the world is the good news of Jesus Christ. Everything else pales in comparison to that reality. A true and right teaching of what Jesus alone did for the glory of the Father and for the blessing and benefit of his beloved people. It is most beneficial to always keep this precious truth in front of us so that we add nothing to the great and complete work of Jesus. All our good works, when done in faith, are simply clearly a testimony of the greatness and beauty of God at work in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Each moment of each day, we are at the crossroads, needing to make vital choices choices between two very different paths. The one path is all of Jesus. The other path is something of ourselves in some way. One path leads to peace with God and everlasting life. The other path leads to alienation from God and ultimately eternal death. And so I ask God, ask, ask you to ask God to help you not fall prey to the false prophet's bad fruit. Cry out to God and Jesus to help you continually recognize and trust in the true and good fruit of the gospel of Jesus Christ and feast upon it only each and every moment of each and every day. None of us can do this on our own strength. We are utterly dependent sheep, always in need of our shepherd's care to enable us to live through the narrow gate and do the will of God in Jesus Christ as we walk through life on his narrow road. Let me close with this passage that was previously read and may even have more of an impact on each of us when we hear it again. It's from Titus. Paul's writes to this church that is being developed and strengthened by Titus. And it provides a wonderful reminder us, uh, for us. At one time, Paul describes, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Not something I'd like to parade for everyone to know. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. All of Jesus, nothing brought by us. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we so greatly need you. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring your salvation to 
each and every one of us, anew and afresh, each and every day. Help us to walk that narrow path. Give us courage and strength, humility and love to live our lives for Christ and for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for every neighbor that we encounter. We love you and thank you and praise you. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.